Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Students Against Mandates podcast. Our hosts today are myself, Sheldon Monroe, my co-host, Lee Vossen. Um, and today we are joined by our guest, James Corbett of The Corbett Report. Uh, the Corbett Report is an independent, listener-supported alternative news source. It supports, it operates, on, pardon me, on the principle of open source intelligent uh, news and provides podcasts, interviews, articles, and videos about breaking news and important issues from 9-11 truth and false flag terror to Big Brother police state, eugenics, geopolitic, geopolitics, the central banking fraud, and more. So James, welcome and, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So, James, a little quick question. We were just curious, one to to um, get to a little bit more um, familiar for our guests for who you are. We know you're from Canada. Whereabouts actually from Canada are you from? We know you're in Japan right now, but but whereabouts did you originate from here? So, I am a Calgarian at heart, and I would put on my uh, flames toque, but I'm afraid it is in the wash <laughs> right now. But uh, I will wear it next time we talk for sure. Um, so, I am an Albertan, um, terminally Albertan. I have been to uh, I've been to BC and Saskatchewan, and never Manitoba, and have only been through Ontario, Quebec briefly. So, <laughs> I'm very much a Western Canadian. Very cool. Well, I'm actually at, at the University of Calgary recording this right now, and so that's where I, I attend school. So that's uh, that's very fitting. Then that's my great. old alma mater. Is Say hello right? for me. I certainly will. Well, that's very cool. That certainly uh, bumps the school uh, up another notch. <laughs> <laughs> James Corbett. That's very quite cool. Um, so, how did you come to see that there was a need for alternative news? I know the corporate report was started around 2007, but you know, was there a certain event or, or series of events that made you skeptical about the mainstream establishment news, pardon me, and, and set you off on this course? I guess, I mean, if we really want to psychologize it, we could go back to my childhood. And I think I've always had a certain amount of distrust over the mainstream media, at least an awareness that there is obviously an agenda towards what is being shown to the public and what is not. That is obviously part of the corporate oligopoly that had formed in the mass media industry of the 20th century and the pervasive control over television, radio, newspapers, magazines, music, media, movies. It was all consolidated into the hands of a handful of corporations, as I'm sure many people have seen um, that viewpoint expressed many times. Um, so I was, I was always aware of that from a young age. I remember, for example, um, junior high school, watching the evening news um, with my dad on the couch, just watching it one night. And they had a, a news segment about uh, some new product. And I can't remember what precisely, but after watching this news segment about this great new product, I looked to my dad and I said, was that news or was that a commercial? And he said, I think it's a commercial, son. So I've always understood that there are sort of other um, things at play at the things that are presented through the media to us. But it never, it certainly never occurred to me that my life would be taking me in that direction. In fact, I studied English literature at UFC. And then I went to uh, Dublin for a year to study Anglo-Irish literature, get my master's degree. And people would always ask me what I was going to do with my degree. I would always say, I don't know, but I know I'm not going to become a teacher and I'm not going to become a journalist. <laughs> and then I ended up coming to Japan to become a teacher and I ended up becoming a journalist. So <laughs> one never knows. Um, but I think the, th the, the real inciting 
events that were that brought me to where I am started in 2006. It was a mundane, prosaic, everyday sort of thing for me where I was just moving into a new apartment here in Japan. And for the first time in several years, it, it, it came with an internet connection. So I had internet connection at home as opposed to going out to some internet cafe to download emails and what have you. So I suddenly was finding all this, these new platforms that had sprung up in the time that I had not been online, um, like YouTube back in the early Wild West days of YouTube, uh, Google Video, which existed at the time, archive.org, these sorts of places where I could consume content to my heart's content and anything that I want, shattering the old 20th century paradigm of the, the programmers are going to program in this, this program at this time and this program at this time, and you must watch this or, or nothing. Suddenly I could, I could consume any content I wanted. So I started to explore as was my want political uh, stuff, things of a political nature. And coming from a very mainstream perspective, I was interested in the Colbert Report and The Daily Show and things like that, just to keep up with the news. Um, but in that time, uh, in the early days of YouTube, I would I would always see that on the recommended vi video bar, I would see these crazy conspiracy videos of weird information about flying orbs brought down the Twin Towers and things like this, which I would occasionally click on just for a laugh, um, just to see how ridiculous they were. And they often were ridiculous and silly conspiracy videos. But every now and then there'd be a video that raised a point that I thought was so so ridiculous, so outlandish. That cannot be true. What are you talking about? Operation Northwoods. What, the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States signed off on a plan to actually kill Americans in staged terror attacks in order to go into Cuba to start a war? This is ridiculous. This is nonsense. And then I would go over to the uh, nsarchive.org and actually look up the actual document itself and read it for myself. Oh, this really was a plan. It really was signed off by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's insane. Insane. I've never heard about that. Why didn't they teach me that at the UFC? So um, that's when I really started to uh, more of a process of discovering this mountain of information that was directly accessible online in a way that had never been possible in any time in human history. Suddenly, sitting here in Japan, I could read all these documents and look at these things directly for myself. And I started to really notice the discrepancy between what I was seeing and hearing in the in the media, what I learned in education, and what I was seeing online that I could discover for myself, not crazy theories, but actual documents and things that I could prove. And that discrepancy got to the point where I thought, well, I have to insert myself in this somehow. I, I've, this information is too important. I have to do something with it. This is the internet age, so I'm going to start a website. So that was really the origins of the Corbett Report. That was 16 years ago. And I'm glad I did that because never in my wildest imagination would I have imagined that I would be doing this full time for a living, that this would be my career. I, I, I'm a podcaster now, I guess. Is that a career? Well, anyway, that's <laughs> what I'm doing. And uh, I have reached millions of people online in that 16 years. And that is not something I take lightly. And I don't think that's anything about me personally, I think that speaks to the power of this revolution in information uh, technology that has really empowered people in a way that we've never seen before. And that is obviously anathema to the status quo establishment. And I think that's why we are starting to see censorship on such a mass scale. And these questions surrounding who can and cannot participate in various online fora. Oh.
That's so funny that you say like you're surprised that you end up as a podcaster. I was just saying to someone yesterday, I never, I had said before to my friends, I would never end up on a podcast. Like it's just not something I'd be interested in doing. I ended up loving it. I love doing this, but just not, you know, a route I ended up seeing myself on. But um, prior to the COVID-19 scare, did you have any indication, just because you've been doing this research for some time now, since 20 or 2007, did you have any idea or indication that something like this, an event like the pandemic was coming? I mean, I know there was things like events 201 and whatnot, but even prior to that, did you, were you kind of aware something was coming our way? Uh, yes, yes, I was. And I can say that uh, with confidence because uh, you could go back into my archives for a podcast I did in 2009 on the concept of medical martial law. So I've been talking about this for a very, very long time. And so back in 2009, for example, I was looking at the development of swine flu. And I don't know how young you are, you may may not remember this, but 2009, oh my God, everyone in the world is going to die of swine flu. It's an international pandemic and uh, the World Health Organization was ringing the alarm bell and suddenly everyone was needing to be vaccinated for that. As it turned out, as we now know, that was actually a less deadly flu season than usual, but it certainly was a convenient excuse for flexing the World Health Organization's then newfound muscles. So um, in 2005, the International Health Regulations, which is part of the fra framework and fabric of the World Health Organization, was amended to include various new um, levers of power that could be utilized in a declared emergency. So there was uh, a new uh, concept called the Public Health Emergency of International Concern, PHEIC, which was inserted into the international health regulations in, in that 2005 amendment and ratified in 2006. And 2009 was the first time that that was declared. It was officially declared for the swine flu pandemic, which was really only a pandemic under new definitions that the World Health Organization had used for that term, pandemic, that they instituted literally months before the swine flu pandemic began um, to change the their definition on their own webpage. And I've cited it many times, I've linked to it many times, people can go in the Wayback Machine archive and look at the changeover between before the swine flu pandemic and then right before the swine flu pandemic. And in that time, they changed the definition of uh, pandemic from a um, widely spreading uh, international uh, 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 flu or other contagion um, that it causes mass death to simply a internationally spreading contagion. Um, they took out the, the mass death part of it because obviously that was not part of the swine flu calculus. Anyway, they were able then to use that as an excuse for the World Health Organization Board of Advisors to advise WHO then director Margaret Chan to declare the public health emergency of international concern. And I, so I saw all of that play out and I had seen in the, the decade prior to that, the buildup of this legal infrastructure. For example, in the United States, um, there was a, an entire uh, raft of infrastructure, including a, uh, a state by state was passing a sort of template for uh, emergency measures an emergency um, uh, bioterror slash public health um, legislative package that was being passed in state after state after state that was uh, that would enable governors to essentially become medical tyrants, um, quarantining, locking people down, uh, force injecting them, etc. So I 
I'd seen all that. So as I say, in 2009, I had a podcast on medical martial law and this idea that in the event of something like the next swine flu or whatever, they can pull this trigger and all of these things can happen. And I taught, and I, so I saw it happen over and over throughout the, the previous decade. Um, we had the, the, oh my God, everyone is going to die of Ebola scare that lasted for a month or two in the media. Um, came and went. Most people didn't think about it, but I remember seeing that and seeing all the ways they were declaring the public health emergency of international concern and, again, flexing these various legislative muscles. And then we saw it with Zika. Uh, I believe there was another Ebola scare in there. So I had seen this coming and going, and I, I have, again, you can go back in my archives, you can see that I talked about it over and over, the World Health Organization and these various powers that were being instituted. So in 2020, at the beginning of 2020, when we first started hearing about this Wuhan coronavirus and, and oh, the World Health Organization is looking into it, I remember at the time thinking, oh, here we go again. It will be another <laughs> Ebola or another Zika or something along those lines where the WHO gets to flex its muscle a little, grow out its infrastructure, perhaps as was the case with the swine flu, use the uh, public health emergency of international concern as a way of activating various obligations of member states to purchase vaccines, ka-ching, ka-ching for the vaccine manufacturers. In fact, the European Council even came out in 2010, I believe, I've linked to the report before, of um, an investigation that they did into the board of advisors that advised Margaret Chan to declare the swine flu as a public health emergency were largely um, connected to the big pharma vaccine manufacturers who then directly benefited from that um, that call for the public health emergency. So there's all of this was the co context in the background. So at the beginning of 2020, I thought, oh, you know, here we go again. <laughs> here we are. I was on very wrong about that, obviously. I was not expecting, oh, this is the one they're really going to pull the trigger. So in that sense, I guess I was surprised in a sense that this was the one. Yeah. But the idea that this was going to happen it has been there for a very long time for anyone who is actually following this. Then what do you what do you think about this catastrophic contagion? Like, you know, they planned Bill Gates has planned another one of these seminars to sit down and discuss how to um, keep misinformation from spreading and that there's going to be this another pandemic where it's going to affect mostly young children or, or more uh, young children than it did with COVID. Um, do you expect to see another pandemic coming um, where there, you know, that this does come to fruition? Or do you think this is just a seminar? Or what do you think? I think it's important to understand that, um, that in a sense, this is about a, a framework and a worldview perception. And if the perception is that any spreading pathogen of any sort is uh, a, a cause for alarm, then uh, essentially any if you all you have is a hammer every problem looks like a nail right and so when we have this infrastructure for public health emergency of international concern and the coming global vaccine pandemic treaty whatever that's going to take whatever form that's going to take that the who is already expe expecting to pass next year although it isn't even written yet at least supposedly um obviously i think the the infrastructure is there so when we see the whatever sort of international spreading pathogen, it will be, oh, my God, here it is. It's the big one. And yeah, maybe years later, they'll go, oh, actually, it wasn't so bad. Like swine flu. Oh, actually, it was a less deadly flu season than usual. Like what we've just seen over the past few years. Well, actually, you know, it's just the flu. But 
oh no oh my god let's change the entire world infrastructure over this so um yes in a sense will it come to fruition again i think because they are setting up the all of the the various safeguards and mechanisms and things surrounding this i think they're going to attempt to use that um whether it will be justified i mean i I, i'm not sure why we have hit this new pivot point in history where suddenly uh we're expecting pandemics to occur on a frequent basis now again i think it's more about worldview and perception which is i think an important part of event 201 and events like that i i don't think it's a, a smoky cabal back room of people who are literally planning pandemics, but they are planning, uh, they're shaping the, the, the worldview and perception of the people who are in positions of power and control in the event of a pandemic. So, for example, in Event 201, you had the head of the Chinese CDC, you had uh, various U.S. Uh, government representatives and officials, including uh, one of the CIA-connected uh, uh, individuals, and I can't remember her name, Avril Haines is the name coming to mind. Anyway, uh, various um, people who were in positions of power who then, when Wuhan coronavirus struck and, oh my God, what's going on? All of those people were in the very positions that they were just wargaming out a few months ago, so they already knew what to do and what was going to happen. One of the things they talked about at Event 201 was the spread of online misinformation about this theoretical pandemic that they were wargaming out. And what will we do about this? And we might have to start censoring things online. This was all talked about in advance. So again, whether or not this was part of a literal script that, okay, we're going to do this, or whether it was just, hey, guys, let's start looking at the world this way. And then when it happens, we do it this way. Um, it's, it, in a sense, it's very logical, of course. If you if you war game and, and think about and strategize for the next pandemic, then anything will potentially fit that bill. And you can sort out the mess later. Oh, okay, it turned out it was just, you know, a, a new variant of the cold. But anyway, whatever, who cares? Um, we've got we've got this the, these muscles, we're going to flex them. Yeah, well, regardless, I mean, it's it's quite an eerie concept to have an encroachment on people's civil liberties coming under the guise of a, of a you know, health-related scare. But looking back now, I see that there was also quite a, you know, a directed, concerted effort towards getting people vaccinated, of course. And you brought up an interesting point earlier with the mass death changing of the definition there. With the vaccines, we also saw a definition change from the original form of, of what was considered to be a vaccine and also, you know, quite profitable for the companies we, as we've seen. You know, in generalized, general question here, getting your feeling for what are your thoughts on the COVID vaccines? I think, again, you raise an important point because we do call the mRNA injections that are going around now. We we call them vaccines because they are referred to as vaccines. And so, OK, this is vaccine. But you are right. This is a fundamentally new medical intervention that has never been approved for human use before and is now going under the name vaccine, even though it operates in a way completely different to any vaccine you have had in your life. Um, So we should not normalize that nomenclature. It is significant. And so the mRNA injections um, have, of course, an interesting history that I think it would behoove us to know about if we're going to put that in our body or if we're going to mandate it for people, I think we should probably know about what these, this technology and where it came from and what it does and how it developed. So we would start to look at companies like Moderna 
um, which of course was founded uh, essentially to develop this very type of technology. And you can look at their own PR and press uh, that and publicity that they were doing in the pre-COVID era, where they were talking about um, rewriting the software of life and things along these lines. That's their words, not mine. They're talking about the software of life, as in we can go in and modify RNA in order to express any protein we want. And uh, they've talked about DNA vaccines, which operate on a slightly different principle and which, as they've even admitted in their own material, does have the potential to change you at a genetic level. Um, I, I know that's called conspiracy theory, but they they talked about it. Well, one reason we might not want to go DNA vaccine is because it might change your genetic you at a genetic level, but mRNA vaccines won't. So let's let's pursue that. Um, so Moderna and these companies, which uh, again did not arise out of the ether, out of nothing. Of course, a company like that requires millions and millions and millions of dollars in capital to even get started, let alone to start developing a vaccine and bringing it to market, which can bring which can cost tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. So where is that sort of money coming from? Well, it's coming from the philanthropy, philanthropy, philanthrop <laughs> I can't speak today, philanthropies and the, the wonderful philanthro capitalists like Bill and Melinda Gates, who, of course, were early and heavy investors in Moderna and helping to bring their first test vaccines, not to market, but at least to clinical trials um, with an initial grant, I believe, of $20 million. And um, and of course, there's this whole I mean, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gives these grants to things like Moderna or or the London School of Economics or the whatever um, for their various research purposes. And then separately, there's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Trust, which is the investment vehicle for this philanthropy. And they get to invest in companies like Moderna, buying their stocks so that if they happen to take off, well, ka-ching, ka-ching for this wonderful philanthropy. Um, and so people have pointed this out in this space before 2020, um, but obviously took on particular significance in the past few years. Um, so these companies came along to develop these things, which we are now referring to as vaccines, but there was a huge problem Obviously, as has been pointed out, the even the, the most speedily rushed to market vaccines in history have taken, I, I think, the, uh, the quickest was seven years of development and trials before they could be put on the market. But suddenly we had these mRNA injections within a year, year and a half. How did that happen? Um, well, obviously, the perception of crisis was enough to steamroll and railroad absolutely any safeguards that had been put in place, which is a lesson for us going forward. Um, but also, uh, this was talked about explicitly in a conference that was held by the Milken Institute. And I believe this was in October of 2019 at around the same time as Event 201, um, which featured uh, uh, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Bright, other representatives of DARPA, the NIH, um, HHS in the United States, who were talking specifically about this issue of these new technologies like mRNA vaccines that are coming, coming, coming online. We're starting to get them, but it's going to take, at best case, it's going to take at least a decade of research, development, clinical trials, testing before we can get something to the market, unless there was some sort of big crisis and the federal government could step in and do something about that. Ha ha ha. 
again, please don't take my word for it. Please watch the actual proceedings of that Milken Institute uh, uh, conference that was being held. You can watch it for yourself and listen to them discussing this. And lo and behold, a few months later, well, the perfect crisis came along to justify exactly what they were talking about. And now, of course, with the in this age of the fact checkers and the officially approved you you are allowed to talk about this you are not allowed to talk about this of course everyone knows that well yes mrna vaccines are are a new thing and they were it was very quick after the 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 discovery of coronavirus the the covid19 um that that it was rushed to market but it wasn't a rush because these have been in development for decades. They're the most <clears throat> tested things in all of human history and blah, 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 whatever the fact checkers have uh, deemed allowable to say, which is total rubbish. It is garbage. It is not true. Um, again, any vaccine in history has taken at least several years, if not decades, to bring to market of careful clinical trials. And as I'm sure a lot of your audience is aware, that did not happen in this case with emergency use authorization overriding the usual safeguards and even the rigged control trials that they did attempt to do. They even undermined themselves, um, unblinding the studies in the midst of the study going forward because oh, it looks like it looks promising enough, thus completely undermining the study itself so that there is no control group. All of these basic scientific practices completely undermined in the headlong rush to develop this um, technology and put it into people's arms. I, I don't see, I don't understand how anyone who is being completely intellectually honest could say that this is, there is, this is totally fine. And we should definitely do this again in the event of whatever comes along next. Yeah, you brought up some really interesting points there. I mean, we're going to get back to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and, and you've done wonderful work on that, which me and Lee were discussing earlier. Um, so we'll get back to that. But I think it's it seems to be it's almost actually a two part side where it's it's there's organizations with nefarious intent, but also as you mentioned, people who who do trust the you know act as fact checkers and and who trust what the government's saying in regards to their health. So you know, many people have appeared to have blind trust in the government to lead us out of the pandemic safely, called pandemic. When confronted with information that goes against the government narrative, people become distressed and, and even hostile. We've seen this many times. Where do you think this blind trust in government originates? Well, I guess it depends on your geography, or at least your political geography. So <clears throat> I'll put on my Canadian hat or toque, as the case may be, and talk about it from the Canadian perspective. Because look, I, as I say, Albertan born and raised grew up in public education system in Alberta. So I know the sort of indoctrination, to use a loaded term, that is given to uh, Canadians from a young age, that government is there to help. Government is a good thing. Um, as you know, Canadians are essentially socialist by default, and they might turn otherwise uh, as they grow older. But that's that's the sort of soup in which we are are raised. And the Canadian, you know, yeah, look at the American government; they're crazy, but they're 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 crazy. That's America. We're Canada. We have a good, stable government, and we were born. I, I still remember from a, a Canadian history class, um, one of those actually. You guys probably don't even know this. The, the old slide projector thing with the presentation yeah, of, you know, yeah. oh, it was just so silly. But anyway, uh, it, I remember the stirring speech about America was forged in war and bloodshed, but Canada was forged in peace and 
reconciliation or something. It was, <laughs> it was the most uh, wonderful feel feel good propaganda. And of course, uh, again, growing up with uh, uh, Heritage Minute and all of those types of uh, Canadian uh, programming of, uh, look, we 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 did the blue helmets and you know we're peacekeepers and we're a wonderful force in the world. Uh, again, the overwhelming urge for most Canadians is to trust the government more or less. And obviously there are times when you disagree with whoever's in power. And obviously, again, coming from Alberta, I grew up listening to my dad railing about Trudeau, as in Pierre, and what he did uh, against Alberta and all of that sort of stuff. But that's the kind of left-right politics. But overall, the system is good. Overall, the system will function. That is generally, I think, the the, the status quo default Canadian mindset, or at least it was when I left the country 20 years ago. And I think it really is. It is a a very upsetting experience for people when they have to confront that. Um, cognitive bias, uh, uh, cognitive dissonance is real. And it, it affects people on a deep level. And I obviously, I had my own experience with that. As I say, with my experience in 2006, starting my journey towards what became the Corbett Report, it was an incredibly upsetting time of not quite, okay, Everything I've been taught is, if not completely untrue, at least is certainly not the full truth. And so now what is true? And it's it's a very disorienting process. And so I have incredible sympathy for people who are going through that in this particular time as things are accelerating and getting crazier by the day. I had the relative luxury of doing this a, de a decade and a half ago when perhaps the, uh, the stakes were not so high. Um, so I think for people who are approaching and and I don't want to say confronting, but in a sense, that's kind of what you are doing when you have these kinds of um, discussions with people who are still in that mindset of government is is generally there to protect us and to love us. And they may make mistakes, but don't worry, it'll all correct itself. It, when you are trying to break through that wall of conditioning to say, well, actually, there are forces that, that don't correspond to that. And just trying to point out, for example, the various big pharma manufacturers who have a literal investment, a stake in the outcome of certain things, and perhaps they're lobbying, maybe there's some influence there. Um, I know that, again, people raise up their defenses and their, their hackles uh, get raised quite easily on issues like this, which is why I think we have to approach others with sympathy and meet them where they are in order to at least Put the information out there. I would say never be afraid to put information out there and to let people know what you think. But obviously, it does require some tact and some ability to um, understand when to push and when not to push. And that's that's a huge question that obviously just depends on interpersonal dynamics. Yeah, and it's a process, right, to sort of uncovering all this stuff and unlearning what you've learned. I know for myself at the the beginning of this, I feel like maybe 2016 is when I kind of started to say, oh, the news media is not reporting things honestly. And then it just kind of unpacked a lot of things for me. And over time, I started to see it. And of course, then during the pandemic, but I had a lot of moments where I sat there going over all of the data and the facts that I had and going, are you wrong? You have to be wrong. This doesn't make sense that your reality is so different from what you believed it to be, right? Um, and it took a lot of sitting there and going over and over. And then, no, you you are right. And a lot of people don't know what's happening. Um, something that, you know, I definitely felt isolated during that time. But when I went to the Freedom Convoy and you saw just how many people um, felt the same way and, you know, felt the same way about the mandates and uh, the 
policies that have been implemented, that was definitely very liberating. As a Canadian, I'd like to hear what your views were and, and how you felt when you heard about the, the Freedom Convoy taking place in Ottawa. Yeah, that was um, an incredible thing to behold. And I wished I could have been there to experience it. But I did at the very least get that vicariously from various people in my audience, Canadians who were telling me about their own experiences, relating to me their personal experience of, for example, being in a small town of a few thousand people and going out to the overpass to cheer on the convoy as it rolled past. And suddenly there are hundreds, thousands of people who show up for it. It's, it was, uh, I'm sure, electrifying. And even halfway around the world, uh, I think it was electrifying and it was clearly something that uh, that spoke to, I think, the underlying reality, which is never going to be represented in that corporate establishment media, which, again, literally has a stake, is invested in not presenting certain information to its audience. One of which is the idea that there is widespread. You are not alone. There are many, many, many people who think like you, and you are not some weird fringe wingnut, racist, misogynist, whatever, just f because you do question what is being told to you by the, uh, the corporate media or the government officials. And I think that recognition alone was uh, worth the price of admission, as it were, for the Freedom Convoy. And obviously, uh, my, my deepest sympathies to people who were caught up in that and got debanked and all of the craziness that has gone on as a result of that. But it was a valuable, valuable lesson for a lot of people. Again, not only in the potential dangers of what is coming as we step closer and closer towards a cashless society, for example, where people can be debanked with the flip of a switch, but also the, the other side of that coin, the empowering side of it. No, there are many, many of us. And when we do stand up, we can make a, a genuine difference and even break through the 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 sort of gloss of the uh, the establishment media and get our voices heard it can be done and i think that's an important lesson to understand as well that you know there it's not that uh, abandon all hope you know everything's going to hell in a handbasket we do have a part to play in this but we do have to stand up and we do have to be firm and sometimes that requires sacrifices so again for all the students in Canada who have made sacrifices to their own education, to their potential, their future, not knowing what their future might bring because of not wanting to go along with mandates and all of that. Again, um, deepest sympathies, but more, more so than that, I think hopefully we can work together at knowing that there are many, many more of us to hopefully change the direction that things are trending. Yeah, really, really um, well said. That's it's so true. And, and it, it really did just in regards to the, the trucker convoy exposed to us a, a lot of uh, kind of concerns and, and and some real realities we're facing and, and kind of it seemed quite dystopian at times in, in regards to the government's reaction but you had mentioned there and again i was actually coming up as the next question here is in regards to cashless currency system uh, you've made some really interesting points about this on your on your show and and this really did relate to the the convoy in the sense that of course they froze bank accounts for people who who just, in many cases, merely just assisted, I think was one of the words that, that uh, they considered to justify freezing bank accounts. Now, is it safe to say that the freezing of, of bank accounts of those who challenge or question authoritarian governments is a precursor to the complete digital system? And is digital currency an attractive concept for governments due to this reason? I think we have to understand this from that context that we were talking about earlier of people who trust their, have generally trusted their government to have their best interests in mind. I think 
This is the clarion call wake up for anyone who may, might not have understood what is potentially possible and the real dangers of allowing so much centralization of power and control, even in the hands of the government. Uh, let's just imagine that the government was taken over by some tyranny someday far off in the sci-fi future. I know it's hard to imagine, but if that were to happen, and again, even from the perspective of people who love Justin Trudeau and think the liberal government is wonderful and love everything that they're doing and everything from the past few years, even from that perspective, let's imagine Canadian Trump got into power and started doing all the things you don't like. Look at the amount of power that comes from the centralization of control under, say, a central bank digital currency, which is in the works, which the Canadian government, along with pretty much every government on the planet, is currently investigating, piloting, testing, um, which can, depending how it is implemented, could be the sort of nightmare cashless society future that we now understand what that can look like. For example, you donated to the wrong protest movement uh-oh, sorry, citizen, we're going to debank you. And that is a process at this point with FinTrack and individual banks having to uh, debank their customers and all of this. But in the future, it, if again, if it is centralized at a certain point, they can literally turn off your ability to buy and sell at the flip of a switch. This is the concept of programmable money, as in money that can be programmed with various restrictions so that, for example, in the event of the next big pandemic, which we all know is coming right around the corner, um, if and when they decide, for example, to lock down populations again, if we had a central bank digital currency in place, it would be possible for the government to say, okay, you cannot spend any currency outside of a five kilometer limit around your house or something along those lines. We will keep you geographically contained simply by turning off your money if you try to leave that area. And that could be easily done with the, obviously the wallet on your smartphone, which is tracking your location, which knows where your residence is because it's all tied into a digital ID. Again, this has sounded like sort of crazy conspiracy theorizing for many years, but anyone who doesn't see how this combination of technologies is coming together at this moment to allow that level of power is I think willfully blind to what is happening. And as I say, it's incredibly dishonest, even for supporters of the government and what has gone on for the last few years to say, I could not imagine a scenario where someone I don't like gets into power and starts using these powers for a bad purpose. So if this is such an incredibly Orwellian nightmarish concept that we should not allow to exist because it can and presumably will be abused at some point in the future, then, well, why are we heading towards that? And how can we step away from it? I think are the questions we should all be asking ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And in China, they have that social credit score system, right? Where uh, if you buy water or some sort of like fruit juice or something, you get a good rating. But if you buy alcohol, it's a bad rating. And then it reflects it. Like, it's just that's a really scary environment to live in. And we definitely do not want that here. And it seems like a lot of people are ignorant to the fact that does exist in other places, right? And if you say something um, that the government doesn't like, your your rating goes down. And, and it's just you're not really living in a free society in that way. And definitely with the implementation of these <laughs> vaccine passports, you could see how it's these sort of steps towards that. And it's just terrifying. But I'd like to jump back to you mentioned Bill and Linda Gates and 
their foundation. Thank you so much for reading that book, by the way, so that we don't have to do that. <laughs> I've seen that in the bookstore. Like I just, I can't flip through these pages. Um, concerning uh, sort of organizations and individuals like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the WHO, WF, and whatnot, um, how much of what they've done during the pandemic do you attribute to ig- ignorance, poor execution, or an ulterior agenda or motive? I certainly don't think that everyone involved in these organizations is in on some sort of plot. I don't think, I, I certainly don't have the signed, sealed, delivered document of Bill Gates, you know, okay, unleash the bioweapon or anything along those lines. That, obviously, uh, I, I don't think that's the way that this functions. Having said that, there are obviously many, many people who are in one way or another caught up in the sort of structures that are created around something as monopolistically vast as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And they have various interests in going along with certain scripts that are provided for them. Um, Again, not literal scripts, but the, the sort of uh, the framework for what is uh, coming along. So let's, Let's step away from the the sort of COVID uh, nest of issues because that's that's an entire can of worms. Let's take a look at something like, oh, how do you give aid to poor uh, people in Africa who don't have access to clean water and and proper sanitation and all of these things, and thus are more likely to die of cholera and these other diseases, which should be under control. Well, I, a Bill Gates may come along and take a look at that situation and go, okay, well, I have billions of dollars, so I'm going to help those wonderful poor starving Africans by giving them vaccines. Why vaccines? Why is that particularly the medical intervention that you would think of, first of all? How about clean water? That might be where you start in order to help provide public health, right? But no, no, it's 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 specifically around vaccines and these types of medical interventions that are provided by big pharma manufacturers. Now, why would that be? Why would Bill Gates, for example, be one of the founders of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, whose literal mission statement is to create healthy markets for vaccine manufacturers? <laughs> what What does that have to do with providing health to people who are in positions where clean water and sanitation would go a long way towards improving their health and would probably be cheaper in the long run. Why would you do that? Oh, obviously, because again, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Trust is literally invested in the vaccine manufacturers who then gain markets through this process. Um, So people have to understand sort of the bigger, the bigger concern of this web of interests that converge at there's no there's no money to be made in simply making people healthy. There may be money to be made in giving people medical interventions that cost a lot of money. But don't worry, governments will offset it, but with, you know, with grants and funds and things. And yeah, there will be some manufacturers making some money on the back end. But don't worry about that, guys. And uh, again, don't take this from James Corbett, conspiracy theorist. Uh, why would I believe him? If you go to CorbettReport.com/gates, that's where you can see, watch the entire Who Is Bill Gates document that I did back in 2020. Uh, It's all there for free and the entire hyperlink transcript with links to everything where I quote people from even within the WHO UN infrastructure um, back in the 2010s and even the early 2000s talking about Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation's growing influence in the public health sector and how they are prioritizing expensive pharmaceutical interventions as opposed to cheap and 
obvious interventions that could improve health. And there were people ringing the alarm bell about this, even within the institutional structure at that time, but they were largely silenced and suppressed. How does that work? Oh, well, does it, you think it's related to the tens of millions of dollars that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation provides in grants to various um, corporate media uh, uh, facilities every single year in order to influence their coverage of the global public health space? I think there probably is some connection there. And that might be why there is so much laudatory coverage of what the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been doing for decades now, because they have literally invested in sometimes, I, I believe in the case of uh, NPR or uh, some of these institutions, literally created global public health teams of reporters based on the grants that they were given from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So they are literally covering this space by uh, by recourse to the funds that they're receiving from the people who are the main drivers of this space who have largely monopolized it. Um, this is obviously an insidious web. And as I say, I don't think there are people who are literal agents of some sort of agenda who think that they are working towards some grand conspiracy. They're just people who are just doing their job. Well, I'm a reporter who's getting paid to cover global public health. And oh, by the way, I'm being funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So maybe I'll say some nice things about them. It's a lot of people doing what they what is expected to them of them in their roles that have been created and funded into existence by people who are literally invested in certain outcomes. So I think we have to really understand the bigger picture. And Bill Gates, really, I, I know I'm talking a lot about him, but just because he is a, a good example of that, and I think one that most people understand, most people know who he is, most people have heard of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but there are many other interests out there that, that function in a very similar way, the Wellcome Trust and other such interesting entities, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, that again, most people probably haven't heard of, but once you start to look into it, you find function in a very similar way. You, I mean, it's it's. So yeah, I'm just thinking to myself quickly. I mean, it's it's um. It seems almost when you you how the way you've done your your reporting quite quickly, you understand it actually supersedes any sort of uh, political mindset or political motivation. It's really just just presenting the information, and it and it uh, you know people can take it as they will, and as they might like to. Um, I'm thinking as, as advice for university students, because I think we're in many cases a little bit behind on understanding. I mean, certainly still presented with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as being, a, you know, a, a good concept and, and, and they very well may be doing good work as well. But for university students, do you think it would be kind of a quick some way to summarize that as advice? Just just follow the money. Is, is that a, a good way of summarizing that in a sense? It, that is certainly a good starting point. I don't think that the entire agenda boils down to simply monetary concerns, but that's a, a very good way of at least starting to unravel the thread, because that is, I think, the base common denominator. There are many different people who have different interests in various aspects of what's unfolding right now. But the, the one that I think appeals to everyone is, hey, there is money to be made from this. So just using that as, as a general guide, you start to understand, for example, how it is that media could be in such absolute lockstep on an issue like this. Why would this happen? Or why would government officials, even officials that you would expect would not be going along with this great reset agenda, suddenly were, uh, again, speaking as an Albertan, Jason Kenney, 
from the, you know, Alberta, you know, yay, we're going to stand up to it. And maybe at first it seemed like maybe Alberta would stand and then ultimately became just as draconian, just as lockdown crazy as anywhere else in Canada, perhaps even more so in the, with the arrest of uh, Pavlovsky and things like, like that, just insanity. But why would Jason Kenney do this? And uh, why would why would these various governments do this? Why would these corporations be interested in this? Again, money is an obvious common denominator. But as I say, I don't think it ultimately boils down to money. I think there are other things on the table. I, I think at a certain level of the power structure that we're living under, which is not the political power structure that we think of as the the governing structure of our world. Oh, it's the politicians who run the country. I think there are other forces besides. I But I think money at the uh, at sort of the higher levels of power is essentially a, a stand in for power. And uh, I, I think people are probably more interested in the power and control than they are in the money uh, at a certain level of the game. And on that note, Jason Kenney, uh, oh, wait, yeah, he attended Bilderberg, at least in 2014. What's Bilderberg? Is this some kind of new plant-based protein hamburger or something? No, no. It, again, for people who are just finding out about the World Economic Forum and its existence in the Davos meeting that happens every year, you might be interested in something like the Bilderberg meeting, which also happens every year, but does not get the coverage that Davos does, does not involve thousands of people, does not, it's not a thing where you can buy your way in with enough money. No, this is an exclusive invite only royalty, heads of state, uh, uh, captains of industry getting together about 125 of them in a room in a national capital somewhere in Europe or North America every single year under total secrecy to the point where for the first 50 years of its existence from its founding in the 1950s until the mid 2000s, it was pretty much officially denied. I mean, there were, you were called a conspiracy theorist if you thought, if you said that the Bilderberg meetings were happening. But now that uh, that obviously in the internet age, that lie was not, uh, they weren't able to perpetuate that lie. They have switched tactics. And now Bilderberg has its own website and posts its its uh, attendees and its uh, its agenda on on its website every year. Um, take it for what it's worth. But at any rate, it's all public now. Uh, again, I, I think there's something else going on. But why would someone like a Jason Kenney be attending Bilderberg? And then why would he suddenly be going along with all these lockdown restrictions? Maybe there's something worth looking into there. And again, that's where conspiracy theorizing starts to get theoretical because you know I wasn't in the room and I don't know what they're talking about, but we can speculate about certain things and who's meeting and things along those lines, but don't, don't hold your breath and wait for the CBC to be covering that. I know Lee has a question, so I'll just interject really quite quickly just to thank you because I, I, I do remember the Bilderberg being, you know, uh, growing up and, and having that that uh, heard at least by my, my, my folks and, and saying, oh, geez, this is of concern. And then it seems like today there's so many distractions and, and you know, ever, ever evolving distractions that, um, kind of uh, hinder your mindset a little bit and and, and certainly memory. So anyways, uh, pass it on to Lee, but, but thank you for, for bringing that one up. Well, uh, a question that we like to typically close our interviews with is just to have the guests provide some sort of piece of advice or message to our audience, which is primarily students. Um, so I'm wondering if you'd be able to do that just for, for our audience. My mind boggles at that because obviously it is important. I do want to leave people with a message and it, it uh, honestly, at the end of the day, 
as dark as some of the subjects that I talk about and as seemingly hopeless as they, they may sound at times, it, I, I like to think my message is ultimately one of empowerment because I genuinely believe that as, as bad as things are, I think they have gotten that way because we have ceded so much of our personal individual sovereignty to these other entities and these other institutions that will take care of it. Government will take care of it. These, the media will, will cover it if it's worth covering the corporations. Yeah, they may be out for a buck, but at the end of the day, they, they love their customers. When we can break through that and start to realize that, well, actually, maybe they're not the best stewards of our lives, then the real the real message at the end of the day is we need to take our sovereignty back for ourselves and figure out what we can do with our own power in order to create the world that we want. And that should be a message of empowerment. It isn't a happy, you know, yay, yay, everything's going to be fine. Let's all hold hands and sing kumbaya sort of message because it's going to be an incredible amount of work because we have ceded so much of our lives to these institutions that taking it back and taking that responsibility back for ourselves is going to be a huge undertaking. So I, I, it's, not a, it's not the happiest message, but I, I think obviously for people who are at the beginning of their, their careers, their lives, uh, you are going to be the, the glue that holds this together or which unfortunately we all fall apart. And so it's an incredible responsibility. Uh, at the very least, please know that people like myself and others uh, who know what is going on and know what is happening right now are on your side and we are here to help you. Um, but it does involve starting to really start to question at a fundamental level, the way the system is working and how comfortable you are getting on the bottom of the corporate ladder and climbing your way to the top in a system that you know is not working in your favor? Or do you want to take the time to start creating those new systems? And so for people like yourselves in this conversation, Lee, Sheldon, going out there and, and doing this, spreading this word, getting empowered like this, awesome. Hats off to you, 100% I'm on board. And I, I hope you guys can continue doing what you're doing and spreading this message further and further. Um, for everyone else who's in the audience listening to this, again, all I can say is please start at least thinking about what you can do to take your power, which is the basis for all of this that is happening right now and taking it back into your own control um, to the extent that that's possible. And that's going to be uncomfortable at times and it's going to involve standing up against forces that seem overwhelming at times. But hey, look at the Freedom Convoy and look at what can happen when people start standing up. It's uh, it, it does make a difference. Wow, that's perfect. I too, it's interesting, despite, um, you know, the pandemic unfolding and learning about all this stuff, I do feel in a way empowered by the information that I don't feel ignorant anymore. You know, like, you're learning about this stuff. And some of it's kind of dark, but you go, at least I'm aware of it now. And I can do something about it. I'm not just sitting in the dark. And this is all unfolding. And it's going to get to a point where it's too late. And this, you know, digital currency is upon us. And I had no idea until it hit us. I'm glad to to meet people like yourself and listen to your podcast and other pod similar podcasts and be get gathering this information and knowing there's like-minded people around me and we still have time and we still have the power to do something and make change. Thank you so much for joining us. That was incredible. I absolutely love your show and appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with us. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys again for doing what you do and please keep doing it. Uh, the world needs more 
young people standing up and uh, and doing something different. Wonderful. Same Thank to you. So Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. People should head over to the, to the corporate report. I'll just do a little plug at the end there just because <laughs> that was a great sort of information for me and Lee. And so it's a great place to to maybe start uh, activating those mental juices and, and thinking about things differently and, and getting a different perspective. And of course, James, I think how you started is you just grabbed a mic and you had the, the internet there and, and you, you got up and running. And so I, I think there's a little bit of inspiration and in, in having a, a bit of a, a path forward or potential path forward for those who do want to, you know, um, share their share their views or, or the news or information. So anyways, again, thank you so much, James. We appreciate it so much. And thank you. Have a good one.